Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates. There is a shorter, produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. Good evening. Thank you so much for your patience as we ensured everybody made it into the house safely. Um, I'm Philip Bahar, and I'm the executive director of the Chicago Humanities Festival. It's my pleasure to welcome you tonight to this conversation with Krista Tippett and Tanahasi Coates. It's the first in what's going to be about 90 programs between now and November 12th during our fall fest called Belief. We'll be exploring the notion of belief from a variety of different perspectives, from the religious and spiritual, to the social, the economic, and the political. So we hope that you can all come out to as many programs as possible. If you haven't picked up a brochure, please do on your way out, and please feel free to download our app, which will allow you to kind of chart your course through the festival and the 90 programs that we hope you come to at least a few of them, if not 90. With that, I just want to thank our hosts here at University of Chicago, our partners at the Institute of Politics. These are longstanding partners that allow us to come down here and use the incredible facilities here at the university. We'll be back here actually on Sunday, November 5th for a program, uh, 10 programs that day, including a former UChicago professor, Danielle Allen. She's a great political philosopher. She studied ethics. And she's actually going to be coming back to talk about the judicial system and incarceration systems in America and their devastating impact on African-American men um, through the lens, actually, of one of her cousins who got swept up into that system when it was a young teenager. So that'll be something that you will not want to miss. Um, And with that, I want to introduce um, Zachary Williams, who is here at the University of Chicago. He's a leader of color with the Institute of Politics. And thank you again for coming out and enjoy the evening. All right, good evening, everyone. I'm here tonight to introduce you to the two incredible thinkers you'll be hearing from. Krista Tippett is an accomplished author and host of her Peabody Award-winning podcast, On Being. On Being aims to open up the questions at the center of life. What does it mean to be human, and how do we want to live? Krista Tippett was awarded the National Humanities Medal for thoughtfully delving into the questions at the center of human existence. And tonight's um, talk will actually be a live recording of On Being here at the Chicago Humanities Festival. As a part of the podcast Civil Conversations Project, it will feature an in-depth interview with Ta-Nehisi Coates, right on the heels of the release of his most recent novel, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy. Ta-Nehisi Coates is an author, educator, journalist, and comic book writer of some incredible, (laughs) yeah, of some incredible Black Panther comics, mind you. Um, More than that, he is a national correspondent at The Atlantic, he received a MacArthur Fellowship, and his most recent novel, or his previous novel, Between the World and Me, 
is a New York Times bestseller and won the National Book Award. But beyond all of these incredible accomplishments, Tanasi Coates is a leading intellectual whose work has pushed our collective racial dialogue further. He's an inspiration, and tonight you'll hear all about his unique and impactful perspective on our world. Enjoy. Well, it's, um, it's an honor and a pleasure. Can you hear me? Is that? No, I can't hear myself. Um, it is an honor and a pleasure. Here? No? They're not on. See, this is, not on. Is this on? Okay. Let's try again. Yeah, I like that. Okay. <laughs> Gotta hear him too. Tess? Tess? <laughs> is, that, is that working? Um, Wait, was that a yes or a no? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. okay. No. No, that's not working. We can do it the old-fashioned way and hand the microphone back and forth. Yeah. Maybe. Test um, now? Still nothing. It's a lot of people. We have a lot of humanity in this room. Can, I, can we put these in the stand? Well, these are, these are the ones that are feeding the radio, and that's what's feeding the house. That's the trouble. Oh, so we still need both still of them? We still need these. Okay. Yes. And the one we have okay. The only sure thing about our miraculous technologies sorry. is that... <laughs> I'm sorry. ...an infinite number of things can go wrong. Okay, so we're going to... It feels kind of old-fashioned, which is kind of refreshing, mm -hmm. maybe, except you don't like holding a microphone. I actually have three microphones. I know. <laughs> I know you have to forget about because the other two. Because what I have two. to say is so powerful that it requires three, <laughs> evidently three microphones. <laughs> okay, it's an honor to be here with all of you and with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, and I think we should just dive right in. We're going to speak for, the reason there are all these microphones is because we are taping this. Um, we're going to speak up here for maybe 45 minutes and then open it up. Uh, I think you were writing questions while you were standing in line. So um, my intrepid producer, Lily, has been going through the questions, and we'll, we'll have a bit of an exchange, um, some questions that came from you. And then we'll come back to the two of us and finish out the evening. And I, I always start my conversations, um, whoever I'm speaking with, asking about the spiritual background of your childhood. Um, over the years, I've come to understand what that means, the spiritual background, really expansively. Um, I wonder how, I mean, one thing that you've written a lot about your childhood, you've written, for example, that you didn't have Christian optimism, you had physicality and chaos. If I ask you about the spiritual background of your childhood, where do you start? Where's your mind go? Well, the first thing I think about is an, an absence of it, um, because the African-American community, obviously the, the black church is so important, and it was important for my cousins, and it was important for my grandmother, and it was so absent in my house. Um, I mean, this is probably not the way to think about spirituality, but as a child, what I understood is that people got gifts on Christmas. And I did not. And so there was this absence. Okay, these people are religious. I'm not, you know. Um, 
having said that, I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, as, as, I, as I think, of, think about it, I grew up with a heavy sense of what I would not call ancestor worship, but I would call ancestor reverence. Mm. So there's a strong sense that people before you had sacrificed and they were the reasons why you, you would be there. I can remember like being a child and going to like various political events in the African-American community. And there was this whole tradition of saying libations, you know, where you poured water into a plant, the plant representing the earth and, you know, folks had gone back to the earth. And you, you would say names, and those names could be, you know, anybody from Malcolm X to Tucson Louvertour to your Aunt Grace to, to whoever it was who you felt had somehow sacrificed um, for you to be there. And it wasn't until, see, this is why you had this job, because it wasn't until you asked that question. <laughs> it's <laughs> that a great I question, actually, isn't it? No, yeah. it is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, you're shaming me as a journalist. Um, but it wasn't until I, I, you asked that that I, I connected that to, because I talk about that actually a lot in my writing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, here's something you wrote um, in your new book in We Were Eight Years in Power, which is really fantastic. Um, you wrote, um, oh, you did write, you wrote, I was, I was from the kind of home that would have been labeled on paper, pathological, six siblings born to four women all of whom became college graduates, except for you. Except me. <laughs> except for you. But no, that wasn't it. You wrote, um, I can somehow remember, you're talking about this day that you've been, you're unemployed, I think you've lost three jobs in seven years. I, I did, that's correct. You read three jobs in seven years. You said, I can somehow remember all that I did not allow myself to feel walking away from that unemployment office and through the Harlem streets that day just as I remember all that I did not let myself feel in those young years, trapped between the schools and the street. And I know that there are black boys and girls out there, lost in a Bermuda Triangle of the mind, or stranded in the doldrums of America, some of them treading and some of them drowning, never feeling and never forgetting. And you know, that's spiritual background too. Why? That, that's... (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm serious. Because I feel like that, that feeling or not allowing ourselves to feel, that Bermuded triangle of the mind, to me, it's inner life, which is just a way to talk about spiritual life. I, it may not be the way everyone defines it. I, you know, like I think about that, and um, I, like I talk about this in Between the World and Me, and I guess it's kind of highfalutin as that might sound, um, well, I mean, I don't know any, like, I think about, like, neurons Yeah. when I hear that. And, and I recognize that when I'm writing, I'm, you know, doing something else, right? Like, uh, I'm talking about it, like, I, it, you know, that, you know, sentence would not sound the same if I said, you know, certain neurons in my brain fired and then, <laughs> right. you know, like, I wouldn't, that doesn't quite convey the feeling. Um, it's so funny. I mean, I don't mean to say it's not spiritual. I, it's just not as when I, when I write. Yeah. It's not what I think about. Which does not mean it's not there, I guess, but it's, it's not the, the process. It's interesting that you receive it that way, though. I mean, one thing, kind of where, you're, where you are writing and thinking these days, takes off a little bit, and in some ways your career, from this, you know, that place, and in that same season that you were in that Harlem unemployment line, the campaign was starting for Barack Obama, who had become the first mm-hmm. black president. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to talk about, I mean, the problem of the color line, which was language of W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. is just a thread that runs through. Like, it's, it's been your fascination. Do you remember when you first um, read that or? Read Du Bois or when yeah, I became read first Bois. aware? No, yeah, well, when you read Color Line and how that, when that captured your imagination, what happened? Um, well, I had to read Souls of Black Folk at a very, very young age. I mean, I probably was like nine or ten. Yeah. Um, my parents, there was this book I had, and for some reason it had Up From Slavery, Souls of Black Folk, and I want to say autobiography of an ex-colored man in the same book. You, you have to understand like how I was raised. There were just books everywhere. And in my house, uh, about 90% of those books were either by or about black people or the black diaspora in some, in some respect. Your father was a librarian. He was. My father was a research librarian, and he you know, had loved books. So that, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, it would have just been around. And I read it. And, you know, I wasn't so much struck by it because I thought it articulated something that I guess I felt like I had already begun to encounter in, in, in yeah. other places. You know, um, it, it was quite clear to me. And then at the same time, I got to say, I didn't get it. Like, it, it, it's probably only in the last five to eight years, <laughs> as you know, articulating that book, that I, I got it. I didn't understand blackness and whiteness and white supremacy as central to American history. And there are people around me that said that. You know, um, like they would say, you know, this country is built on our back. But the whole, I would, be, you know, I would wonder why. How do, how do you illustrate that? What does that mean? You know what I mean? And I guess, and now I'm getting to the answer to your question. <laughs> um, it probably was actually during my studies of the Civil War that I got it. That it that what he meant by being the problem of the, not just the problem for black people, not just something that people should not do, but a thread that ran through all of American history, mm-hmm. you know, d- during that period. And, you know, thinking on now, he probably underestimated, you know. Yeah, I mean, he said the problem of the 20th, the 20th century, century, the color line, and for you, well, I would the color argue, line shape shifts, but it doesn't go away, and it's just, it's yeah, with us in the 21st. Yeah, and it was the problem of the, 18th, 19th, 20th, and hopefully not 21st, but not looking like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, uh, the title, We Were Eight Years in Power, which we, I mean, you know, Americans right now would think that's about the Obama presidency, but it's actually taken from a speech of a South Carolina congressman. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, is one of the stories that you look back at, at in light of who we are now and where we are now. Um, as one of the ways to see that the color line is still there is very vivid and powerful. And you also really challenge what you call the myth of providential progress. Yeah, I, I think um, um, and I'm still developing this, right? Like I'm still thinking my way through this, but I, I often feel as though in, in the broader American consciousness there really is not a great sense of tragedy. I'm, I'm not the first person to say that. Baldwin wrote that, other, other people well, said that. Well, not just, but also, I mean, this, this providential progress is the idea that 
God is that we're moving on us towards this everything. ultimate yes. Yes, yes, wonderful yes, yes. resolution. Yeah, and that's yeah. old in I mean, uh, you know, it's not even that, that's old in America. They're, you know, yeah. like the people who settled, not settled, <laughs> the people who conquered, you know, and killed, um, thought America, you know, to be some sort of you know paradise that God had magically bequeathed them that would be free of all of the you know curses and conflicts of the old world. Here, man could be made anew. You know, um, that, that was the notion, you know, of, of, of folks who came here. And I think that stayed with us, that this is, you know, somehow, you know, a special place that is free of all the, you know, um, like you, you have to understand, I mean, these are people who are coming out of, you know, say the 30 years war, you know, all these yeah, religious right. massacres and, right. you know, and so maybe they can come to this place and be free of that. What I would argue is in fact, they came here and duplicated the same problems that they were running from, that the problem was not, you know, uh, the old world, the problem was them. <laughs> yeah. It's actually within them, it's within humanity, but the, the, we would come here to this place and escape the basic problems of humanity. And I think that's actually still with us. There's nothing original um, in, in the experience of white supremacy. It looks very familiar if you, if you study across history. Mm -hmm. um, but we can't accept ourselves as part of that history. We feel that we're somehow exempt of something from it. You know, you talked about neurons a minute ago, and I do feel like one frontier we're on of advance is understanding our brains better. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, the color line is in our heads. Mm -hmm. And it's like we change laws, right? I mean, you, you go through this history of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction and and how betrayed the promise mm -hmm. of those events were mm -hmm. because we didn't change ourselves ultimately. Yeah, and I, I think like that's hard for people to accept. Um, there's this notion, I mean, I think that goes along with that, that idea of a sort of providential deliverance. I mean, I guess the place, you know, in terms of the book that I, you know, most recently encountered it is the um, implicit idea that, 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 you know, President Obama was, uh, prone to repeating that, you know, the arc of history uh, is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Um, and I, I just, I mean, that, that sort of, you know, notion of destiny, you know what I mean? I, I don't know how you measure that against the very human um, practice of repeating, you know, brutality over and over again. And beyond that, like, what about the people who, what, what if you don't, um, believe in humanity as this kind of collective, but believe that every individual life is a, you know, a, a unit in and of itself. And when that life is snuffed out, that arc is over. Um, and so people who were lynched are not a part of a long-term historical process, that in their minds, that's their life. And history ended the minute they were snuffed out. And so, you know, it's kind of providential understanding makes them bricks in a road mm -hmm. um, in order to give it a happy ending, in order to say it was all worth it. Um, but I maintain it was never worth it. It was never just, it was never right. The process is never, it's always wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's always wrong. And I, I think it, um, I think there are a lot of things implicit in that, that devalue, um, I would probably say not just the lives of, of African-Americans, but the lives of people who live, you know, un underneath of the boot. And actually are 
demean the lives of white people too? Yes. If not in the sense of being on the other end of violence in the same way. Um, you know, you say this, you're really fascinated with the Civil War, you're really a student of the Civil War. You say something interesting I, I've never heard anybody talk about in this way before that, or just kind of, you know, it's one of these, these kind of very simple truths that someone suddenly puts words around and you see it. Um, that there's this, you say, for, and for black people, there is this, the burden of taking the Civil War as our war. Even that piece of our history is a history of white people, right? And it's, I don't know. The, the trouble with this book is I don't remember everything I wrote. <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, I can say something. Yeah, I no. Mean, I can, can dance. Um, <laughs> I can still dance. I think, yeah, but so, so, <laughs> so let's, like, so... No, because it's, it's like eight pieces that I wrote over the course of eight. And I did reread all of those pieces <laughs> when I was writing, I guarantee you. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Everybody. Okay. But um, I can, like I said, I've I been can, there. Okay. No, but, but okay, so, so, the, so the story, so where we are and right. what you're writing to, and you become a voice of this, mm -hmm. is this shocking thing that I think so many of us have woken up to that 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, 50 mm -hmm. years after the March on Washington, even in the years of, um, of a black president, mm -hmm. um, how do you say it? Um, you know, that, well, also just that you grew up, that, I mean, the, between the world and me was really a dominant theme of that was the fear, fear in your body, for your body, mm -hmm. for your children. And one thing, and the vast energy that consumes, and what you said is, you know, we suddenly, we suddenly, some of us suddenly saw that young black men and women were not safe on our streets, mm -hmm. not safe in their own neighborhoods. Um, and one thing you said is it's the cameras that are new, not the violence. I mean, it's really Steve. I, I remember right now. You remember that? That's a good line. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's really Steve Jobs we have to thank for the fact that yeah. people are walking around with iPhones. Uh -huh. um, this shocking realization, 150 years after Reconstruction, 50 years after civil rights. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, I think technology has always played this role. Um, for instance, it's not like um, the first time, you know, John Lewis, you know, those marches were, were beaten crossing the yeah. That wasn't the first time it happened. Yeah. You know, it was just suddenly you had news cameras, you know, it could be But seen. that was an amazing actually story, actually, how everybody was watching the same channel back then. Right. And what movie, it was some movie. Oh, you, I have no about, idea. You it was like a me. movie about Nazi Germany. And then that people started being beat on this bridge in Selma. Did they Selma, like cut the movie? And, and they cut they through it? to the movie and they showed Americans not being treated like people. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I didn't You're even right. know that. But that wasn't, but like that wouldn't have been possible 20, 30 years yeah. before. You know, it was yeah. the technology that suddenly made it visible. And, and I, I think, you know, it's the same thing here. You know, uh, my previous book, Between the World and Me, is about, a, you know, a friend of mine who was killed by the police. Um, there were no camera phones. There was no Twitter. There was no anything, you know, and he just... Um, and that was Prince? Prince Jones, yeah. yes, yes. And, and when was that, like 2000, 2000 early 2000s? Uh, fall of 2000, he was killed. Yeah. yeah, and he was just swallowed into the abyss with all the lives of other, you know, black people who, you know, had been snuffed out in similar ways, just sort of were, were forgotten, you know. Um, and now, 
people, you know, can see it. Yeah. The question remains how much that actually changes, though, because it's not clear that the country is yet prepared to um, not even hold the police accountable, but hold itself accountable, because I think that actually gives too much power to the police, because it's the yeah. people that tell the police to go do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, it, it's not prepared that the country's actually ready to hold itself accountable. Um, and so while I think it's great that people can see it, I guess that's probably progress. Um, I think, you know, it needs to be measured against the fact that, you know, Philando Castile was killed on camera, nothing happened. Aragona was choked on camera, nothing ha happened. Sandra Bland wasn't killed on camera, but you could see the officer acting in a way that, you know, uh, people probably don't want their police representing them. Nothing happened. Yeah. You know, no one went to jail. Um, and so the question becomes, how much does this actually change? And I told you before we walked out here that I'm not going to ask you to be optimistic. Okay, but now you are? No, I'm not. Like, I was, because okay. I, I see that everywhere you go, you're telling this <laughs> truth. Uh huh. And then, and then white people. Uh -huh. want you to say, okay, so where can we find our hope? And yeah. I was watching you on Colbert recently. Somebody saw that. You know, he really wanted you to give hope. I mean, here's, here's what I find. You know, when you, you write, you may not remember writing this, but you did. Our story is a tragedy. I know it sounds odd, but that belief does not depress me. It focuses me. Well, I believe that. I don't remember when I wrote it, but it's true. Well, I mean, you have... <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you don't, you, don't, you, don't have, you don't have hope or you don't want to use that word. No, that no, word, but, but you, no. You are, but there's a, there's a focus, there's an energy. You know, you know what it is? Mm -hmm. I don't actually think I'm that singular in this. I don't know, um, and I don't know if they're journalists here, but I, you have to understand that's my training. I was trained as a journalist. Yeah. Journalists go out and look for things that are wrong in the world, and then they write them. And it is not the case that your editor says, okay, that's a cool story, but there's no hope at the end. <laughs> right, right. That's not a thing editors say to journalists. Yeah. Which is what I am. Um, and so it, it's not so much that I even object to hope. You know, it's just that the thing I do <laughs> That's not a criteria for it. You, you, you know what I mean? It's not your calling. No, I mean, it's just not what I, and you know, the other things that influenced me, I was before that, I, you know, I was, you know, hugely influenced by poetry. Poets are not acts to be hopeful. Yeah. Um, when I was in college and I did go to school, I was a history major that had a huge influence on me. If you want to be depressed, you should go to the University of Chicago's history department. Um, <laughs> I'm serious, just, just pick any history. In fact, I you know, always dare people to do this. Um, <laughs> I always dare people to do this. You know, find um, an American historian, somebody specialized in American history who has great knowledge, and any American historian should, of the history of white supremacy in this country, and ask them, are we going, is it your, can you say, can you give me some hope that we're going to get over this? I mean, I've yet to find a historian that does that. Now, maybe they are somewhere, but that's not, like, that's not how they're trained. That's not what they're trying to, your dissertation advisor doesn't say, this is a great dissertation, but there's no hope at the end. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not sure why I get the question. 
Um, no, not that you asked the question. <laughs> um, you know, where, where I find you to be um, closest to what I think other people are wanting from you mm -hmm. when they want you to be hopeful is when you write and speak about Malcolm X. Huh. Um, you know, you... Yeah, he gave me hope. He gave, well, you he talk did, about, yeah. like, he gave... He, he, he gave he gave the he he presented more than anybody else the possibility of what you call collective self creation. Right. Well, I, you know what? I would listen to his lectures and I just felt free. Like it's not like hope. Like this is like what, I think what people want is tell us that we're going to get that it's past gonna be okay. this. Tell yeah. us it's going to be okay, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's yeah. that's one thing, right? Yeah. But there's a different kind of hope. There, there there are people in the world who accept that their life ends in death, and that's bad. But that's What's going to happen? And then within that, they find, you know, joys and hopes, you know, in between. Oh, I, I have the ability. So for Malcolm, to, to me, it was I can speak about the world in a way that is reflective of my life and my community. I can do that. I don't have to calibrate my speech. I don't have to calibrate how I look. I don't have to calibrate how I walk to make other people feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I have that right. And so... That was like big for me as a writer. Like when I, I started writing, um, there was a school of writing that says, given that the audience is obviously when you reach to any size is not gonna be majority black, that you have to hold people's hands, you have to explain to them, you know, and um, the Malcolm influence on me said, you know, no, you don't. Write as you hear it, write as you hear it. and. In fact, I, I don't even think that's a, you know, um, a particular black thing because if you're black in this world and you um, are gonna become educated on the, you know, what is considered mainstream stream art in this world, mainstream traditions, um, nobody slows down for you. Nobody is gonna hold your hand, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? And explain you know, the Brady Bunch to you. Nobody's gonna do that. Catch up. <laughs> Catch up. Some people live like this. I know it's not what's around you, but some people live like that. Catch up. You know what I mean? We're on the yeah. next. You know what I mean? And that's just how it is. You got to be, you know, bilingual. You got to, you know, figure it out. You know what I mean? Well, I, I'll never forget. I've never written about it. When I first took my first journalism jobs, I would be in pitch meetings and they would make jokes about indie rock bands from the 70s that I had. I didn't know what Ziggy Pop was. I, you know, I still wouldn't know a Ziggy Pop song, right? <laughs> Catch up. Right. Nobody's going to explain Ziggy Pop to you. Get right. it together, you know what I mean? So if they have the right to talk and write like that, I have the right to write about Wu-Tang like that. Yeah. Like, I can do that. I can say, catch up, catch up. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I can do that. And that, that's a kind of, you know, freedom. And I, I get the feeling that one of the most surprising things that's happened in your life is um, <laughs> this, this haunting question that you find yourself asking, why do white people like what I write? Well, yeah. <laughs> because, well, you know... Because it's, it's a, there's a conflict in that, right? Like, if you say catch up, what you're doing is saying, okay, you probably are not going to come over here. Like, if you take the Malcolm pose, listen, I'm going to say what I got to say. And, you know, I am giving up the possibility of, you know, holding people's hands. Because what you're told is, if you want to bridge the gap, you got to hold folks' hands. Yeah. And um, if you give that up, then you give up that possibility. Your, your thinking changes. You say, okay, I, I'm doing what I do over here and I'm gonna do it because it makes me feel free. I'm not gonna do it because I, you know, I expect this. 
you know, that's not, that's not why. And then when this happens, yeah. you, you know, you have 1,500 people. Is right. that what were you saying backstage? Do you remember speaking just yeah, a couple years ago? There like were 12 a, yeah, people. Yeah, it was like 12 people, like four or five years ago. Was it was like, here? No, it wasn't here. I was in yeah. Florida, actually. But it was, yeah. I was like happy there were 12 people that showed up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but you have to like sort of adjust, you know what I mean? And, 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 and calibrate yourself. Um, if you want hope, I think what it is is that that's actually a reflection of the old artistic saw that you get to the general by going to the particular. Which is always mm -hmm, true, mm -hmm. you know, not, not just true of black folks. That, that's always true. People come to hear you, they don't, you know, come. I don't, I don't want people holding my hand. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, I, if there was, you know, some, you know, uh, uh, great and renowned, you know, feminist philosopher sitting in this chair and I was in the audience, don't, don't, I don't need you to talk down to me because I'm a dude. Don't say, his dude speak for what I'm, you know, I'll catch yeah. up. I'll catch up. That's, that's part of the fun. So how, I mean... You know, you, you've, you use this phrase, um, black atheism, <clears throat> which I think means more than just atheism, that there's something, something in those two words together. <clears throat> but part of that, for a while, included this certainty that nobody would take you seriously. Um, and yet, you're, you're taken very seriously. I mean, how, how do you understand what's going on um, that all these people are here, that, that white people like what you write and read, read your books and buy your books? Um, uh, how do I understand it? Don't hold our hands. No, I'm not. Tell I'm not, straight. I'm not. Because I, I, the truth is that I don't understand it, but I'm going to try to think my way through it. it perhaps it's a simple answer, okay? Um, I think white people are human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I knew mean, you were human beings. <laughs> yeah. uh, because the, the, the question, and I, and I admit I've asked the question, presumes a kind of a distance that may not be there. Like, no, you know, like there isn't anything universal or humanistic, you know, um, in the black struggle that can, you know, reach other people. So I think white people are human beings. I think black people are human beings too. Um, I think uh, the experience of black people in this country. Um, you know, as I was saying, in terms of the boys, runs right down the middle, you know, of the country. Like, you can't, you know, really talk about the country without it. But I also think it's reflective of so many other struggles. Like, at its root, it's, it's, it's power. And I think it's reflective of, of so many other experiences, you know, throughout, you know, humanity's history. Um, one of my favorite books is a book, um, a, a, a Distant Mirror, by this um, historian, Barbara Tuckman. Yeah. And there's a part where she talks about how in the uh, 14th century, people talked about serfs, villains, as, as, as they called them, V-I-L-L-I-E-N, I think it is. Um, and she goes through all of these stereotypes that they had for villains. You know, that they were lazy. They never wanted to work. They never wanted to do anything. They were a curse. They were, you know, God's wrath on humanity. One day there'd be a, a day when we would be rid of all villains. You know, um, and she goes through, and I, I said, wow, this sounds really familiar, you know? Like this, like almost to, uh, you know, like loose morals, a sexuality, it was all there. Mm -hmm. It was all there. And so I say that to say that I think, A, that there are human elements in the African-American struggle that I think maybe people see, regardless, you know, of, of what their experiences are. Um, and I think that the struggle, even though this is the lens we see it through here in America, is actually quite old. You know, that there's, you know, nothing... I mean, obviously there are particular details to it, 
but at its root, it, it's not a, a particular thing. I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. I, I experience you to be, you know, so Ruby Sales, who is one of the great, one of the civil rights leaders, mm -hmm. um, back then, 50 years ago, you said to me last year that one of the, a, a, a central quality of this moment we inhabit is a, a crisis of whiteness. Mm. And I experience in your writing that you, you also struggle with white people, um, that there's even kind of a white tribalism that is language you've used that sneaks in when, when let's say, white liberal East Coast writers are trying to be em empathetic with white people in other parts of the country who are struggling. You, you have this quote um, from James Baldwin that really stuck out at me, uh, from James Baldwin. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning to, how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for or will no longer be no needed. One need no yeah. one needed. No one needed. When I yeah. read that, that was like getting hit by a truck. Like, it was so profound because what he was saying was that there actually, there is no Negro problem. <laughs> and that's how it's always, you know, historically been talking, oh, there's a, you know, even not the problem of the color line. No, there's no problem of the color line. There's no, the problem is over here. It's not us. We actually are, you know, quite human. It is, and I think what he's referring to, you know, all of the things that a group of people do to remain in power to hold that boot on somebody's neck. So as Jefferson said, you know, hold the wolf by the ear. That was how he talked about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, slavery, you know, enslavement. That was like profound for me. And I, I think what's happening right now is um, there was a movement, and very, very few people are, are aware of this, you know, um, but there's, there's been a movement that goes back um, to the historians that came out of the civil rights movement. The story the country told itself about the Civil War and thus about slavery and thus about, you know, a reconstruction was one of um, kindly sort of, you know, uh, servile black people and these sort of, you know, patrician, you know, not patrician, but I guess sympathetic, you know, uh, so, sort of masters, um, two different ways of life between the North and the South that clash and have this tragic civil war that, that never should have happened. And then this failed experiment with giving these servile black people government during, during Reconstruction. Right. And there's been a huge reassessment of that in the academy. This was you know, an understanding with, even within the academy. And right. I think what's happened is that people who are in more, in more in public life have been informed by that and are now you know, going back and reassessing. It's no longer okay to have a statue of Robert E. Lee. It just, it just isn't, you know what I mean? Because folks have a better idea of, of, of what that means. The flip side of that is, you know, as we assess those things, as we assess those symbols, as we assess you know, the, the Confederate flag, it's a part of a broader attack on this notion of, of, of whiteness. Mm -hmm. I think like, you know, you, you, you referred to that like tribalism that, that I talk about among uh, you know, East Coast writers. I say that because they think they're being empathetic, but I don't think that's what they're doing. Um, I think in many cases they're involved in a project to excuse themselves. Right. Um, 
if there really was all this empathy uh, for white working class people before, I think um, that writing and that reportage and all of that journalism would have been invested long before Trump. Yeah. Um, now, there's some people who've actually done that. I don't, I don't want to, you know, George Packer, who I've gone back and he's actually done that. But I think a lot of these folks are, are, are reaching um, for an answer that stands in opposition to the fact that in every significant demographic of white people in this country, Trump carried. <laughs> and that's a disturbing reality. That goes for, you know, the class of people, you know, who do that writing also. You know, it doesn't just go for, you know, white working class people. It's, you know, one thing I've observed about it is that there's been a, there have been a lot of, let's just, let's just say New York Times correspondents, but, you know, they stand for saying, I didn't know. I can name names. I have, I, no, yeah, I know. I have no problem doing it. I know, it. but we're in public. Here. I, <laughs> saying, you know, <laughs> saying, I didn't know, I didn't see, we didn't know this was going on. Um, but not accepting the complicity of their world. But the other thing that is connected to, of course, this is all connected to race, right? Because the things that are besetting poor whites now is partly structures that were created to keep poor blacks in their place. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, um, I, I, like, I, I try to write from a really human place, but you, you have to understand, like, I'm, I'm you know, writing from a human place is not always a good thing, okay? And here's why. Um, I am a product of crack era Baltimore. I remember um, the hysteria around crack babies. I remember when crack cocaine was it used as a justification to do all sorts of draconian things, um, to basically reply with the hammer of the criminal justice system for people that were already in crisis. So it was not enough that you felt unsafe, you know, from certain people that lived in your neighborhood. The police did not make you feel any safer at all. Yeah. That it felt like you were besieged on all sides. I remember that. Um, it is hard then to watch some 25 years later, when we are in the midst of another drug epidemic and people are suddenly compassionate. Right. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not arguing the hammer of criminal justice you're, reaching the Appalachia either. I, you yeah. know, I, I, I and you're not that. saying you're against compassion. No, I'm not right. against compassion. I want more compassion. <laughs> like I said, where was right. that compassion before? Right, right. Where was that, you know, why is that compassion suddenly appearing now? Yeah. You know, where, where was it before? And, and mm -hmm. I, I just think that poses, you know, some profound, you know, questions. And also, like, we can't go back and... We can't go back and retroactively do that, but we need to be asking that question, too. Right, because if you don't, you'll do, you'll do the same thing again. Mm -hmm. And then there's this irony that I'm so acutely aware of right now as I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, what is it? I just want to see how I took all these notes. You know, you, you write things like this. I can't find it. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, <laughs> just pick one. In America, one. <laughs> it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. And you are right. And I carry that in my body, mm -hmm. right? In my white body, I carry um, that, that cruelty and that um, violence and all of us. So I, and, and I'm asking you questions. <laughs> you know, um, 
And I, you know, when Colbert was asking you for hope, you kind of said, what, sorry, what? Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Forgetting myself. When Colbert was asking you for hope, you said, that, look, that's not my job. Go talk to your pastor, go talk to your therapist. And I, you know, there's part of me that just wants to, wants to ask you, and I know, that, I know that a lot of people wrote this question down in line. I'm a white person, what do you want me to do? And I'm gonna suspect that you're gonna tell me to go somewhere else, but I wanna know how, <laughs> for that answer. No, I but I wanna know how, I'm, I'm really I'm curious. Not mean. No, I know, I know. I'm a nice guy, I'm a really, I'm a warm, you're compassionate, very, can nice I also guy. Say, can I also say, I'm not rude. You're not rude. You're not, <laughs> you know what, you're not even angry. I'm not. Right? Well, like, a little bit, but I'm not. I'm not angry at you. No, but the rap you got, the rap you got for Between the World and Me was right. this angry guy. Um, what do you say to people when they ask you that? Like, what do I do with my whiteness? My, the legacy of my whiteness? Um, excuse my language, but I uh, tell them uh, to do the same thing I do with the legacy of my niggerness, And that is work for a world where my grandchildren and likely, you know, great, great, great grandchildren are not niggas. And that they should work for a world where their grandchildren and great, great grandchildren are not white. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's, um, because what that question presumes is a kind of, well, is there some immediate action I can do? Yeah. You know, to, to, no, to get out of this. No, this is like generational. Yeah, no, work and there's no immediate action that I can do to get out of this. Right. You know, with the realization is, is that, you know, me and you are here trapped together. You know what I mean? That you're as trapped as I am. That once you are aware, you know, you, you're, you're in the cage too. It's a different yeah. kind of cage, a gilded cage, but it's a cage. Yeah. yeah. It's a cage. Yeah. It's a cage. No, it's a real yeah. cage, and that there's no real um, thing that will probably save you in this lifetime. But why should it? How long did it take to build this? You know, you're, you're just becoming aware of something that, you know, of a process that was going on long, you know, but before you were born. Um, so I think um, it's natural that the first thing you say is, how, how can I get out? Yeah. You know, um, but when you, like when I, that quote um, about it being tradition, and has, I'm not like, saying that for effect. Oh, no, like I know. No, 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 I'm, I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying you. I'm saying as a, yeah. as a way to, to answer yeah. your question. Yeah. Um, uh, that is just another way of saying that from 1619 to 1865, it was legal to torture black people. It just was. Yeah. It just was. That period is, in fact, longer than the period of freedom. And for 100 years after that, it was basically legal to lynch black people. That was fine. That was accepted. Yeah. And in the period after that, it is now basically legal um, for someone you know, with a badge, if they feel afraid, to kill you. That compiles. Yeah. It, it compiles over time. It has effects. And so you know, the notion that you, know, you can just you know, <laughs> you know, dance your way, like, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's not gonna happen. If it took this long to um, get into this, it's worth asking yourself how long it's gonna take to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, 
you, you, you wrote a piece called The Case for Reparations, and I think that, that feels to me like it's, a, it's an important message you're carrying. Um, I, just, I just found this, you know, just this sentence in your writing about that, you know, just kind of, and so we must imagine a new country. Um, I'll just read a little bit more of this. It's because it's, it's very powerful and also beautifully written. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequence, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he is not living a drunken lie. Reparations beckon us to reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is the work of fallible humans. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's it. I mean, um, and what a, <laughs> what a lot of people want to do is they want to live the drunken lie. You know, they, they, they want to... Um, you know, I was working on that piece, and it was like... Because what people will tell you is... Um, I didn't have any slaves. I wasn't alive when this happened. Right. My, my ancestors just got here. You know, um, and what became clear to me, you know, reading that is, okay, but you cook out on the 4th of July. Your ancestors weren't here. They played no role in that. They had nothing to do with it. Um, you take off for President's Day, but you, weren't, you had no part in that. Your ancestors weren't here. There are a number of um, patriotic rituals that folks have no problem participating in them as long as they can get credit for it. But they don't want the debits, see? You know, I want the paycheck. I don't want it to write a check, though. You know, um, and that is a, um, a kind of, you know, in the piece, I think I talk about it, like, as a la carte patriotism. Yeah. You know, it's like... Sometimes friendship, you know what I mean? I'm there when I can get some, but when it's, you know, gets tough, man, I'm out. I wasn't, well, I had nothing to do with that. You know, but it's like, either you're in or you're out. Either you're part of it or, 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 or you're not. Um, I was not alive, you know, um, during the Korean War. Had nothing to do with it, but, you know, my taxes go to pay, you know, pensions, you know, for folks to this day. You know, I would not have been my choice to uh, 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 invade Iraq, but my tax dollars went to it. That's the way a state works, you know? And so I think um, what people want is they want to be a part of the state as long as it gives them something that they like. You know, but when, when, you know, when, when, it, when it's flipped, when there's some other, it's like this thing, you know, everybody is free speech um, until Donald Trump threatens, you know, folks that are protesting in the NFL. Then it's, oh, it's fine to be free speech when it's some, you know, college kids running Milo off of campus. You know, everybody's free speech then. You know what I mean? But when you had the president of the United States literally threatening, you know, folks. You know, and they, oh, well, that's suddenly, you know, that's, that's something different. You know, um, you got to pick one, man. You know, you got mm -hmm. to pick one. Mm -hmm. That's a big one, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. this core of... Of, of how we think of what we're about, and it's so conflicted right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you one more question, and then and, and let's do the questions. I don't know who's... Um, somebody's going to read some of the questions that came in. 
Yeah? Okay. Somebody's shaking their head. All right. Lily. So, um, I wonder, um, some, some of the ways I've processed this last few years and what happened is that the election of Barack Obama, the election of a black man to president of the United States was this magnificent accomplishment that actually at the time was celebrated even by most Americans and people around the world in its magnificence. Um, and that what we didn't understand is that that would also surface all the unfinished work we have to do to be worthy of that accomplishment. And that's what we, that's what's right out on the surface now. But I don't, I wonder, like, that's how I've thought it through. And I wonder how you, and I don't know if you, if you, if you like that way I've phrased it. No, I mean, I think you, that's pretty good. Yeah, oh good, well that makes me happy. I mean, you, you know. <laughs> you could do my job. <laughs> you were eight years in power. You, you could do this. No, I mean, you, you know, you've said <laughs> Obama's rise offered you the chances to see that our theory of, of providence and progress that would continue was to see that as the illusion that it was. So yeah, I would just... Yeah, no, I think, um, I think you're exactly right. I think um, people saw all the celebration and all the you know, um, good feeling that was generated and <laughs> they never considered there were other people who were feeling a different kind of way. You know, they didn't want to consider that and that those people had a significant amount of power. You know, um, I, you know, all of these questions go back to the question of patriotism, right? Hmm. And I don't know what country that's done this yet, but, you know, let's take it, let's take Americans at their word. Let's take the country at its word. It says it's exceptional. It says it's different. Um, so let's try to do something different. You have to love your country the way you love your friends, the way your spouse loves you, right? The people who love you don't blow smoke up your backside. They don't do that. They don't do that. They tell you, you know, hard truths. They love you, but, you know, my wife, you know, something's going wrong, she's going to tell me. Something's going wrong, I'm going to tell her. That's the, that's the yeah. nature of, of, of the relationship. Um, don't mean I don't back her, don't mean I, you know, I, I don't support her, but when is love between individuals, this kind of uncompromising, never questioning, that, that ain't no love. That ain't no love that I would, you know, tell my kid to identify, right. you know, in, in his partner, in his friends. Um, the question, you know, really is, can you accept a kind of love that doesn't say, not just even that your country's always right, but that people with power are always right, because that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, can you view yourself critically? Can you, I mean, listen, I have no problem calling myself an American with everything that's happened. Um, because I understand that America exists within the context of other countries. There is no better place. There is no place that's free of sin. You're just not gonna do that. There's no society you know, that you'll find that was built in such a way that it does not have, listen, I, I spent a year in France, I adore France, love France, love the language, love the food, wine, cheese, bread, all of that was great. <laughs> um, but this is like my country, right? Um, 
France is not without sin. No. No country is. You know what I mean? No world is. So once you understand that, okay, well, this is, you know, your, your, your place. Um, can you get to a place where, and I don't know how you do this, but can you get to a place where, where citizens, you know, are encouraged to see themselves critically, encouraged to see their history critically? Um, I, I don't know, but that strikes me as, as what's necessary. Hmm. Okay, let's hear some questions that came from you. Here we are. Can you all hear me? Okay, hi, I'm Allison Cuddy. I'm the artistic director of the Chicago Humanities Festival, and I'm going to relay your questions to ta And they're all great, so thank you in advance. So the first question is, how has your Howard experience continued to influence you? And it's signed, heart shape, H-U, underscore, underscore, exclamation. Oh, you clearly didn't go to Howard. <laughs> that is not how you say it. <laughs> H U exclamation point exclamation point <laughs> underscore underscore and heart shape. Yeah. Hardcore. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm somebody who went to Howard is laughing with me out there. Um, <laughs> um, okay, sorry, I gotta get past that. <laughs> um, it had a tremendous influence on me. Um Howard was a place um where uh well, everybody was black. I mean, that's obvious. Most people were black. But um, they were not, um, like, they all had different stories. How, to put this in perspective, Howard was the first place. I didn't know black people lived in Montreal until I went to Howard. Um, I didn't know there were black people who liked Marilyn Manson. I just, I, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know there were black people who had so much money that their parents sent them to school with a car. I, I didn't know that existed. Um, there was um, an incredible, incredible diversity at Howard. Howard was the first place where I encountered open LGBT people, period, of any, you know what I mean, any race. It was the first place I saw that. Um, I could walk up on that yard and find people who were deeply into politics, some who were deeply into music, um, some who were deeply into being AKAs or Deltas or Qs or whatever, Alpha, whatever, you know, frat they were into. Um, I could find folks that were interested in marketing. I could find folks that were going to be doctors one day. Um, I could find folks that wanted to be in musical theater. It was all the various 10,000 black people in one spot. And they were beautiful. I mean, just physically beautiful people. I mean, just like, it was like a fashion show on the yard. I had never seen anything like that. I took a semester off once. I took several semesters off. But I remember taking one, because I didn't graduate. That's how intense the beauty was. Um, but I took, <laughs> I took one semester off to go work, you know, as a journalist, you know, at the paper where I started at. And I fell into the slovenly dress habits of journalists. And I came back the next semester, the first day, I was like, oh, this is not going to work. This clearly is not going to work. You, you have to understand what that means when you grow up in a culture um, where black people are not depicted as beautiful. And like you think it's bad now, and it still is, but you have to like think about that 20 years ago. 
um, where you know there's no like like the the uh, um, proliferation of different media channels, for instance. It wasn't it wasn't like that. We had cable back then, but you know that was pretty much it. I mean, this is like you know just as say Sex in the City and Prestige TV is kicking off, and so the diversity of what you see in terms of what is beautiful is just not there. There's a subconscious message that is communicated in the culture that this is what's beautiful, this is what's elegant, this is what's intelligent, this is what's sophisticated, and this is white. It's not you. And for four years, man, I just got shot with an antidote to all of that. And so when I left Sans Diploma, but when I left, I felt like I could fight anybody. You understand? Like, I felt like I, I had no fear of, you know, anybody, you know, having, you know, went to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you should call. I didn't care. I fight anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I felt so armed and confident. It, it's the seed of why, you know, I write sentences like that. I don't care. I, I don't care because I know that it's a group of people that I was, um, who I came of age with who know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it was incredible. It's the seed of everything. Uh, what advice would you give on how to test, I'm sorry, what advice would you give on how to best teach history in a way that is honest and accurate? I have no teaching advice at all. I was a terrible student. Uh, you know, I failed my way through high school. I don't know how I got into Howard University, but I failed my way through that too. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I, I have horrible advice in terms of teaching. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> all right, third question. No, one of the things that annoys me is people act like they know everything, That's right? right? Yeah. You know, yeah. they just stand yeah. up, well, I'm gonna answer everything. No, you don't know. Come on, be clear about what you know and what you yeah. don't know. And I, I don't, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, my name is Matt. Matt, I can't read your last name, I'm sorry. My name is Matt and I'm a third year uh, student here at UChicago Law. What do you think is the most important legal challenge and fight in the next 10 years? I don't know that either. <laughs> I don't. I had a feeling. I mean, I'm serious, like, even in all, like, have I done, I did, I mean, mass incarceration is obviously very important to me, but do I know that that's more important than, you know, like, the fights around voting right now? No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that. You know, is that more important than the desegregation, you know, cases that are, you know, making that way through? Is that, no, I, I, I can't, I'm not an expert there at all. <laughs> all right. Fourth of five questions. So I'm gonna answer this one, I promise. <laughs> You've had two buys now. I don't I think you get a third. <laughs> All right, I'm 17 years old, and my generation does not know how to deal with the older generation's stubbornness and unwillingness to oh, change, even though they are in power. <laughs> what advice do you have? Can you repeat that question? <laughs> what? It's a good one. I'm 17 years old, and my generation does not know how to deal with the older generation's stubbornness and unwillingness to change, even though they are in power. 
What advice do you have? <clears throat> okay, I'm going to talk about why I don't know. And listen, this, here's the thing that happens. Here's the thing that happens. Um, you are well-researched and knowledgeable about one thing that you've been thinking about a long time and you've been reading about a long time. That does not make you well-researched and knowledgeable about all things. Um, these are, for instance, that question right there, they're people, activists, who spend their lives grappling with that and have spent their lives grappling. I, I'm a writer. Um, I prefer solitude. I prefer to be alone. I prefer to, you know, some distance, you know, from, from, from struggle. I, I like that. that. That's my joy. That's my life experience. It, it would be, um, because I think, like, there's this tradition. I get, like, um, this title, like, public intellectual, and I don't like it. Because what it sounds to me is like, you know, people who BS, you know what I mean? Like they're smart about one thing and so, you know, they play into this notion that they're smart about everything else. I, I have not struggled with that at all. I just, I haven't, I haven't. And so like for me to answer would be to pretend as though I had. Does that like, if you want to ask me about like writing, I can, you know what I mean, up one side, down the other, I got you, I'm with you. Because I've struggled with that. I think about it, I was thinking about it on the plane today, you know? Um, that's just, that's a, I can't answer, I can't address things that are not things that I've actually struggled with. I'm sorry, I really apologize. Is there, are there two more or something? There's one more. That's okay. Okay. Don't worry about it, there's one more. This is not going well. <laughs> it all comes down to this one. Uh -oh. So this is not a question about hope, but it may be related. And okay. it's from uh, North Shore County Day School middle school teachers. So it's back to teachers. Uh-oh. It's how can we help our students remain optimistic under oh this God. administration? Oh my God, are you serious? When we ourselves are struggling. So. <laughs> Why would I know that? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I have to try. Um, how do you help your kids? I, so I probably reject the premise of the question. Um, if I were in your class and I put myself back there, I, I don't think even at that age I was looking for hope from my teachers. <laughs> um, I think I was looking for enlightenment from my teachers. Um, I think I was looking for exposure. I think I wanted to see other things about the world. I think I wanted to be exposed to different worldviews. Um, I think I, like, if I were a kid right now, I guess I would want to understand, like, why did they kill Eric Garner? Like, why is that okay? And the answer doesn't have to, you know, like, I don't, I don't need you to make me feel good about that. But I need to know what happened. I just, I need, and people deeply underestimate the freedom that comes for at least understanding. You know, um, it's like, it's one thing to be terminally ill, right? Like, that's bad enough. But to not understand what's happening to your body. And that's kind of the position I found myself in as a young 
black. I didn't understand why when I walked out on the street and say it was a girl I liked that lived across North Avenue, why do I have to bring seven other dudes with me to go see this girl? And when I cut on TV and see the Wonder Years, Kevin Arnold can just take his bike and go see Winnie Cooper. Why? Like, what, what, like, I understand why in terms of the dudes, but what specifically is the process that put, so I would like, wh why is it okay for Donald Trump to brag about sexual assault and be elected, pro how did that happen? How's that okay? Because clearly it is. I mean, clearly, I mean, you know, the demonstrable truth is that it's okay. I mean, and you have to, you know, like, that's the truth. It's okay. You can be elected president. That's fine. It's fine, you know what I mean, to, uh, say that somebody can't adjudicate a case because they're, quote unquote, a Mexican. It's fine to say that, evidently. That's accepted in American society. You can reach the highest offices, not just in the country, but in the world. Why? Why is that okay? How can I live in a world where that's okay? I probably would want to be pointed, not even would want the answers. Give me the tools. Arm me, allow me to be able to understand why. You know, that, that probably would be more important to me. That, that's not hope. That's not hope. But um, I think that, that's the sort of perspective I would have come from at that age. Good job. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Jesus, these questions. What is up with you guys, man? <laughs> On, do you not get asked questions like this all the time? I do, uh, not at Howard. <laughs> not when I go back home. Um, I do, I do, and um, uh, I probably struggle understanding why. Again, like I, you know what, it's, uh, um, I'm not being entirely fair here. Because the fact of the matter is, I think what happens is there's a point in your life where your identity is fixed and, it, and it's formed, and that's who you are. That's how you see yourself, right? Um, and when people encounter you, they see something different. Yeah. But you see yourself. So I see like, like losing three jobs in seven years. I see like going to the unemployment office. I see like being worried about the kid and you know, um, not really being able to help. And even beyond that, like I see like being panicked about writing those books and like wondering if I'm right and trying to you know, figure different things out. I, I, I see the work, that's my identity. Mm -hmm. The struggle is my identity, but there's no way to make that visible to people. They, they see the performance yeah. of it, you know what I mean? And it's uh, perhaps unfair to we, ask them to see you're a public. Else. You're a public person and, and that comes with that. This, can you hear me? No, I feel like my mic turned off. Um, can you hear me? Okay, here we go, sharing. Um, I really want to know what you were thinking about on the plane today about writing. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. yeah, I can do that. I was working on this um, script for the Black Panther, and um, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't sign that for you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you were just saying that you had it. Okay, thank you, thank you for supporting the Black Panther. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, you, when you're um, a, a writer of nonfiction, the primary thing you're trying to do, and I guess of fiction, is you use your words so that people can see things. You're constantly going through the struggle, okay, what words can I use to make things evident to people? 
And when you're writing comic books, the pictures are there, which should be easier, but actually is not. Because you have to write a ton of words um, to the artist who will then create pictures. That most, so in like a script, 80% of the words are actually to the artist, and only 20% are like dialogue, in terms of what people will actually see that you wrote. Right. And it's a constant struggle. It's a constant struggle to get in that mindset. And so I had a moment, you know, in the script I was writing where Black Panther has this sister, this uh, sister, her name is Shuri, and she has these powers, and one of the powers is, I'm, this is so nerdy right now. Um, you asked what I was struggling with, though. So on you, it's your fault. <laughs> Um, but one of her powers is that she um, uses myth and Wakandan myth to make certain things manifest in the world, okay? So a physical manifestation. And I you know, was writing through her doing it and casting it. I said, these are way too many words. Like and I was like, but I like these words. I want to keep these words. And it's like, you can't. There's not enough room. Like, you can't. Like, most of the words, again, should be to the artist. Tell the people what they'll be seeing. Tell the artist what the people are going to see and not, you know, what you want her to say, you know? And that, there's a constant, and it's why I enjoy it. I mean, once you nail that, that balance, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I get really excited about it, but mm. it's a tough thing to do. Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've, we've, it feels, we've talked... Hope is not your word. It's not what you offer. But I'm really struck when I... Actually, and even with just what you just said, I'm really struck with how you really care about beauty. Mm -hmm. You're passionate about beauty. Mm -hmm. and, actually, and you're a poet. Mm -hmm. I was. You were. But you, I think you, 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 write, you write poetically. Thank you. Right? I mean, you, and you work at that. I, mean, it, I do. Yeah. But at, I love the way you, you write about, about that. Or I don't know if I saw an interview you gave where you... You know, I, I once talked to a, a scholar of the Hebrew prophets, mm -hmm. and he said the prophets are also always poets mm. because mm. you have to speak in language that is disarming mm -hmm. and that reaches people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, you, I think you do that. And um, I was really struck at the beginning of, of your new book. We were eight years in power. You wrote, you wrote about the process. Um, you said, you know, that, that this was created from articles that had been written. And you said, but I also had an urge to make something new of them. This book is made in this way because I enjoyed the challenge of doing so. If I can communicate half of that joy to you, then I will have done my job. Mm -hmm. And again, I just, I feel like that joy that we, we've also like experienced tonight is so much who you are rather than, um, yeah, as I said, you know, when, um, Between the World and Me came out, there was this idea of you as angry. Right. So, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here right. as we finish, but I don't know what, what the sparks in you. Well, I, it was, um, <clears throat> I always try to, you know, do two things in, in, in the nonfiction, and that is, um, A, I, 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 I do want the argument to be logically correct and to be on point. You know, like I wanted Case for Reparations to be a, you know, a, a tight, well-constructed um, argument. Um, but like, that's not enough. It's not enough for you to read that and you know, walk away and say, hmm, that seems correct. Mm -hmm. 
you know, um, the writing should be haunting. Mm. You know, I use that word a lot. Like it should, you should, you should really feel it in your bones. Like you should, you should be disturbed the way I was disturbed. Um, I, I started that piece, this is just an example. You know, I, I started that piece, um, well, I'll give a bad example. I, I talk about case reparations all the time. Um, when I was doing the last piece in the book, um, uh, my president was black. I was not sure who was gonna win the election. I mean, I, and so I didn't write it like Hillary was gonna win. I wrote it, I really wasn't sure, you know what I mean? So I wrote it, you know, with enough openness. <clears throat> and then when Donald Trump won, the, the, all of the pieces were in place, that the piece was what it was. But I wanted folks to feel something about that piece. I just didn't want it to be like a correct piece. So I would play Marvin Gaye's Distant Lover over and over again. And there was something so beautifully wordless in that song, like this longing. The lyrics are actually really simple, but it's the way he mixes this, um, like this beautiful falsetto that Marvin has, you know, this kind of, you know, raspy, you know, soul piece that, that, that he has. And he pulls it all together in such a way that you're like, wow, like my wife is right here, but I miss her too. You know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, you left me. You know, he says, you know, when you left, you took all of me with, yeah, that's how I feel. I feel that right now, even though you're right here. And I wanted people to feel that. You know, I wanted them to feel, you know, like, you know, watch that footage of Obama and Michelle and feel when you left, you took all of me with you. Like, you should feel that, you know what I mean? Like, it should be in you, you know what I mean? When you read that piece, you know what I mean? Because I, 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 there was a kind of sadness that I, I could see, you know, among all the black people I knew. You know what I mean? All of them. And I'm not saying it wasn't a sadness among other people, but this is just, you know, get to the general about the specific, and the specific I knew were the black people I, I was around, and they knew. And they knew this even if Hillary had won, that the last eight years had been something that they had never expected, that it was a beautiful thing to be represented in that way. And that's, you know, I'm talking about separate from policy, whatever policy yeah, disagreements yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. But we, you know, as, as, as black folks, we always, like, got to defend somebody. You know what I mean? Like, I, I started my journalism career and Marion Barry was making his comeback in D.C., right? And you always had to defend Marion Barry, you know, the white people. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't like, you know, uh, you know and I have, I have no problem with that defense because what it was based on was, listen, y'all are hypocrites. It ain't like y'all don't be doing stuff. And y'all, you know, but in the back of your mind, you was like, come on, man, smoking crack on camera, come on. <laughs> like, in your own private place, you was yeah. like, come on, man. Come, come on, dude. Come on. You know what I mean? And that was like a feeling about so many public black people, like, you know, and you got to defend hip-hop. I love hip-hop, but it's like, you got to defend it. There's always like an argument, you know, defend, and you never had to defend Barack and Michelle in that way, right? Like, you didn't have to do that. Like, it was liberating. And again, I just want to be clear, I'm talking about, like, I got my policy differences, which is something yep. else, yep. but as a public image, you didn't have to apologize for them. You didn't have to do any of that, you know what I mean? They never made you hang your head. You were never ashamed, and when that went, you know, it was a particular kind of sadness that came. And I was trying to drill <laughs> as much of that sadness in there. You know, and the fact that it was followed by a dude who white folks should be ashamed of but are not. <laughs> like, totally are not. <laughs> they just don't care. Like, just, 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he said, grab about it. I don't, I don't care. He's president. I don't make him president. I just don't care. Yeah, he's tweeting at Kim Jong-il. I would tweet at him, too, if I was in there. <laughs> Kim Jong-un. You know what I mean? I just don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that would be the follow-up. You know, yeah, he called Jong- I just don't care. Whatever. I would call him a Mexican, too, if I was there. They were pr- proud to be ignorant. And you don't have that privilege. You never had the privilege of being proud to be ignorant, ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. Black people who are proud to be ignorant are in jail. They get killed. That's what happens. You know, and that mourning, that, that loss, I just, I tried to drill. And you can't do that if you don't pay attention to the poetry. Right. It's not enough to just have the facts right. right. You got to get all of that in there. And that becomes word choice and sentences and yeah. going over the sentences over and over and over and over again. Thank you. But I think what that words that are poetic and disturb and that disturb, mm-hmm. that what that makes possible, that is actually really rare and Amer- has become rare in America, that I think we're trying to relearn, is disturbing, and yet you could, you stay with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that's why white people love your books and like why they're good well, let's, for let's us. Let's just really quick. Let's just, <laughs> I just let me see that for one okay, second. Okay. I, I just want, white people don't love my books. So, like, I just want to be clear. The people who read books is a minority. I just want to be really clear about that. Okay, right. okay. There are a lot of white people who don't okay. love my books. That's why you had to go through security on your way in, by the way. Just want to be, let's just be clear. Okay. Now we're, we're threatening to take let's a, not get carried an away. unacceptable detour here at the end. <laughs> why you have become a voice in this moment um, because we do, some of us, a lot of us, I think, do want to be telling these hard truths and feeling them in our bodies. And so there is an art to being able to articulate that so that it can hurt and it can be shameful and it can be disturbing and yet we can keep listening and keep thinking about it. I hope so. Okay. Donna has a coach. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.